Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello from high above the coastal mountains of British Columbia. I'm Laura Lynch, and today I've got a special report from this majestic part of Canada. The steam coming out. Yeah. Specifically from an aging volcano named Mount Meagre. The traditional name from the local First Nation translates roughly as cooked face or very hot place. And that heat is evident even as our helicopter lands on the glacier. Yeah, if we can do a quick stop. Yeah, okay, sure. We're standing and we're right in the crater of the last um, explosive uh, volcanic eruption in, in Canada, 2,400 years ago. Steam streams from holes in the shrinking ice, steam that tells geologists this mountain has what they're looking for superheated water that can become a source of clean, renewable energy. So much heat, the industry estimates the mountain has the potential to power up to 100,000 homes. Welcome to What on Earth? The journey to get here took us across some of the most spectacular scenery in the country. Vast glaciers, brilliant blue alpine lakes, and sharp peaks that drop down into deep green forested valleys. It's a string of volcanoes. Mount Meeker is just one of them. Steve Grasby is my guide to the past, present, and future of geothermal energy, with the glacier as our first stop. He's a geologist and a research scientist with Natural Resources Canada. And he knows this mountain, Mount Meagre, well, after years of studying it. But he's not the first to gravitate to this place in search of renewable energy. Others began their own research program here decades ago. A tale that Grasby loves to tell. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, it's just kind of a funny story in a way, too. of Because uh, this program that used to run, it ran for 10 years during the energy crisis. We've talked about it on the show before. In the 1970s, conflict in the Middle East sparked concerns about energy security and skyrocketing gas prices. The possibility of gasoline rationing has been raised in the United States. The chairman of the board of the Chase Manhattan Bank says Americans must be prepared to live with the Arab oil embargo for many months to come. Its cost and supply made headlines around the world. Milwaukee. Oil shortages may force schools to close this winter. Winnipeg, Transair applies for a fair increase, citing labor costs and a 12% increase in the cost of jet... The energy crisis. Emergency meetings and discussions go on around the world in efforts to find answers before it's too late. And all of that uncertainty spurred the Canadian government to hunt for alternative energy sources, including geothermal. Hunting for heat hidden underground across Canada from abandoned wells to dormant volcanoes. The program was abruptly shuttered in the mid-1980s when the price of oil fell. Two decades later, Grasby began looking into geothermal himself. This time, though, the focus was on climate change. 
But the scientists who did so much work decades ago squirreled their research away in boxes and files that stayed closed until Grasby came calling. Fortunately, the guy who ran the program was now an emeritus scientist that came in once a week. And, and he was the clue and he knew where most of the, the boxes of data were. And they were literally in some people's basements and other people's garages. And so we started calling all the old retired people or sometimes it was the spouses of people who had passed away. It was just a, a big uh, treasure hunt. And we, we found it, right? We got all these boxes started coming in. We went to get some. We, some just started arriving in the mail and just come to work. And there's stacks of boxes. The word got out, right? And there, people were just sending it all to me. And was he ever thankful for his forebear's foresight, leaving him ahead of the game? We would have been back at, at step one. It would just all be gone. And uh, we would just be starting all over again, I think. So. <laughs> They saved the, those boxes of... I was going to say, every day you must be grateful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that foundation, Grasby made his own pilgrimage to Mount Meeker to begin his own project with newer technology and tools. Which brings us back to the mountain, a short helicopter ride northwest of Whistler. For this leg of the trip, we're heading to the base of the mountain, where past meets present. There's little to suggest we've arrived at a historic site where the first geothermal drill bore into the base of Mount Meager in the 1980s. But now water leaks from it, water that smells pretty bad. Another drill pump has become home to a giant wasp's nest. A metal fence has all but fallen down. None of it dampens Steve Grasby's enthusiasm. Tell me about what we're looking at. Yeah, this is the a wellhead and that's just where the first original geothermal well was drilled in Canada. It was drilled as a research well. You can see it's pretty old and, and rusty now. <laughs> so it's about 40 years ago that it was drilled. It's the highest temperatures we know of in Canada. So it's about 250 degrees Celsius. Wow. So extremely hot uh, down there. What was your reaction the first time you saw it? Oh, it was just like, exciting because this is sort of like the mecca in the geothermal world, which is pretty small in Canada. <laughs> People involved, <laughs> right? But anyone in, involved in geothermal knows of the this well and and so, uh, you know, it's a relatively remote spot here to get to. A pilgrimage. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, for something that means so much, it's not a very impressive <laughs> thing. Yeah, well, you know, but it's, it's uh, the promise that it holds, right? In pure science nerd fashion, Grasby's excitement level climbs even higher when he meets up with another geologist, Craig Dunn, over a box filled with rocks. Core samples drilled years ago geologist in the exploration space, this was Christmas. So there is literally a picture of me dancing in front of CORE because <laughs> this helped us understand what we were looking this at for like, the development of the This project. is like 10 years of Christmas is all like Christmas is all at once. Yes. The rocks are porous and fractured, meaning the superheated water should be able to travel through them to the surface, meaning they were part of a geothermal reservoir. And this is the other kind of stuff too that tells you this is pyrite, this kind of Fool's gold, mm -hmm. and this is what tells you that there has been fluid moving through the rock because it's depositing these little minerals along the fractures. And so this is all kind of the exciting stuff you hope to see. It's good news for Dunn. He's managing director of a company that's bought the rights to mine for geothermal heat here. The Meager Creek Development Corporation is based in Calgary. It's investing $250 million into this project. Dunn has no regrets about leaving his days in the oil field behind him. My interest in geothermal 
actually started while I was working on a heavy oil sands project. Uh, I was on the project and I had an opportunity to read about a project in New Zealand that was moving forward, reading about the geothermal space. I fell in love with the idea. You know, I got the bug. I drank the Kool-Aid. He thinks now's the time for a renewable, reliable source of clean energy, one that he wants to turn into so-called green hydrogen to use in heavy transport to displace diesel. I asked him what the trigger is now to invest in this. Yeah, there's a couple. The mountain itself has been studied extensively. Um, We've had some of the greatest researchers in the the geothermal space in Canada looking at this project for so long. The big step, though, is in 2019, we went back and realized that there was a number of new research being done on the mountain. And then the other part of that was that now we have access for power into the valley. We have First Nations that are open to sustainable energy project development and road access. So prior to that, even more remote than it is today, is that we didn't have road access into this site. Obviously, as a private company, you want to make money here. How does this make money? Uh, In the original designs, these projects for geothermal would almost always be sold to the grid. So the power itself would be generated through the heat resource, through a turbine, electricity to, you know, homes and electric cars. In our case, the market opportunity actually looked like uh, transport. And so how do you convert an electrical resource into a transport opportunity? Um, And the answer was green hydrogen. And that's really where this project started to shine, is looking at what if we could do something else with the electricity, uh, using electrolyzers to produce clean hydrogen, or green hydrogen with almost uh, zero emissions. Okay, you're going to have to break this down for idiots like me who don't get the science at all. One of the ways we describe how geothermal works is a flywheel over a kettle. So if you already have boiling water, we boil that water to push a turbine. And pushing a turbine with a few magnets on it allows us to produce that electricity. So once we're at that electricity level, then we're using that electricity to uh, break a water bond, hydrogen-oxygen bond, and we're left with two products, both hydrogen and oxygen. That hydrogen is basically an energy carrier. So to think about it as when it rebonds back with oxygen, it releases energy. So by separating them, we're creating an environment where that hydrogen really wants to rebond and release that energy. And that's what we see in like fuel cell cars and trains and any of those new applications for green hydrogen or hydrogen as a whole. Tell me a little bit more about your involvement. You used to be involved in oil and gas, is that right? Yeah, I think the term is recovering oil and gas geologist. But having spent almost a decade working in the oil field, I realized that the technology, the innovation, the entrepreneurial spirit that came out of Western Canada was an untapped resource for the geothermal space. So all that opportunity to transfer knowledge and transfer technology I thought was missing and I thought it was an interesting opportunity if I could take some of that experience uh, and knowledge and apply it into another industry that we could really move the geothermal space forward. Took some patience though didn't it? I've been at this a long time. (laughs) Um, But it's worth the wait, right? I think there's a number of factors that have encouraged us at this time. Um, Since the development of this project, we had a hydrogen office established in British Columbia. We had federal tax come forward in that time. We're looking at a federal policy for hydrogen. There's been a lot uh, that has changed in the last 18 months that encourages us that this project is very well-timed. What are your buddies who are still in oil and gas, what do they say to you about this? They're excited. They've seen me struggle with this development of a new and renewable resource. A lot of people go, and what do you do for a living? Or, you bought a volcano. 
that's not true. I know I'm like, no, we've acquired the geothermal resource at Meager Creek. I have a lot of folks in my oil and gas space that are coming around to, hey, do you need a drill rig? Hey, do you need resources? Do you need some geophysics work done? And it's awesome to tap into that extraordinary experience, even if it isn't specific to geothermal. But it is technology that has actually made it a more affordable prospect. Drilling horizontally, for instance, is something that is, you know, last 20, 30 years new, but, you know, we're seeing some of that in the geothermal space now. Some of the tools that go down hole that are capable of handling 250 degrees Celsius. So the technology means that we can drill faster, we can drill with more information, we can drill more accurately. That allows us to be able to develop projects like Meager in a way they wouldn't have been able to do, especially not in the 80s, but probably not even 10 years ago. When you say drill horizontally, the, the word I think of is fracking. And I know there's been a lot of opponents to fracking. So if somebody comes to you and said, why are you doing this? We know fracking is bad. What do you say to them? One of the primary things that we see is that we need a fracture system that is existing already, has the word frack right in it, so to speak. That fracture system already exists here at Meager Creek. So the motivation for us to use a fracking strategy isn't necessary here at Meager. We see that in the core, we see that in the drill results. Can we talk um, about the First Nation whose territory we're standing on? It's, it's never been settled by treaty, so how does, how does that play a role in how you develop this? You own the rights, but you don't own the land. Akwalkwalushan, that's Mount Meager, if I pronounced it incorrectly. Uh, they've been an, an integral part of this project. We engaged them right from the beginning of it um, and asked them about you know, their motivations and, and concerns. Um, Dean Nelson is on site with us now, which is great. I'm quite proud of the fact that this has been an opportunity to talk to them about the resource that's on their property um, and be able to address some of their concerns about project development in their territory. Because you, you need their consent to go forward. Yes, absolutely. We have an opportunity here to show you know, how we can work with the local First Nations to develop a green energy resource and have them actively involved in that process. Is there any kind of revenue sharing agreement? Not at this time, um, but it is something that we're open to and have discussed. As Dunn mentioned, there's another visitor to the site today. He's brought the chief of the Liwat First Nation here to see it for himself. It's, it's kind of amazing that this has been proposed before. You know, that I, I remember hearing different things and different projects and but nothing really came of it. So being here finally on the ground is amazing. Like to, to have a say in what's happening here, to see what is proposed and you know what can be, I guess. Um, it always is a good opportunity to, you know, to see what you're talking about. It's actually the first time Chief Dean Nelson has been here. Even though it sits on his nation's traditional territory, here in BC, Companies who want to do business on unceded lands need to gain the approval of First Nations or risk lengthy court battles and potentially protests. I wanted to learn more, so I decided to pay Chief Nelson a visit. Hi. Hi there. Nice to meet you. Uh, Political Chief Dean Nelson. The majority of the Liwat people live about 70 kilometres away from Mount Meager in Mount Curry, a village set beside a river and below towering peaks. When I arrive, the streets are quiet. The future of the Liwat, though, are easy to spot and hear. Sounds from a playground are in the air. And it's the young people, the children, the future that Nelson says he's fighting for. 
His own past left him uncertain about many things, including what his role should be. He didn't always see himself as a leader. My thing was being a laborer in construction, and that was going to be good enough for myself. But then he took up a trade, and other things started to unfold. Wildland firefighting came along, and that was a big responsibility to be part of the leadership on that. And In the winters, he started teaching. From teaching came, you know, the community. You know, well, what else can we do? Like We're trying to make change in the, in the school for the kids and in the community. I put my name in for council. I was on council for a few years, and then, you know, from there it went to the leadership role I have now. And I really like to be part of the opportunities that come along, you know, like this opportunity for major investment in, in the future of the nations. We've been disconnected from the culture, from our, our history, and so we are finding our way back, like being included on the land, right? To be actually on the land in a different perspective, like being there as a Leowat, on Leowat land, like, you know, that is very important for children and youth to understand is that we have that right to be there. Because for years there had been all this development going on and exploitation and there, you were never a part of that. Now, especially the, the logging industry that, you know, when we were never part of it on any aspect, environmental or economic or whatever. So in that context, what does this geothermal project on Mount Meager what does it mean to you? It's opportunity for everything, really. Having a say in what is happening on the land, you know, that is the biggest thing for us now, to be included and to have a voice on to do or not to do, or how to do it, you know, environmentally, politically, and you know, that, those values have to be upheld before we now can agree or not to agree the, to have this taking place. And you're still consulting with the community at this point? Yeah, you know, values are, are being talked about and thought about. I'm curious to know what, what, what people are telling you in the community about it. Well, it's, it's mainly to do with the environment. We have those laws that we have to abide by, right? And what is in it for them? Like, how is it gonna affect them? Is it negative like everything else that has happened over the years? Or, you know, are we looking at some positive things coming from this? Yeah, because it must be hard for people to trust. Yes, very, very hard. Because we've, we've been on the receiving end of the youth watching industry progress through here without our participation or, you know, any kind of acknowledgement. So. What would be the ideal for your people in terms of participation? Having the say first and then being included in wherever we can, you know, any kind of work, any kind of uh, progression. Do you think anyone in this community thinks they could be one of the engineers on that project? I do believe that, yeah. There's, there is that growing strength in the community for people to realize that they can do whatever they wish to do. So this isn't just about getting some revenue from that? No, it's a whole shift in, in life. It's, a, it's an opportunity for everything to be looked at, you know. I don't really use that reconciliation word, but that is the underlying tone to everything, that we are included in all of that happens to us and with us. If we came back here in 10 to 15 years after this, the, the 
the project actually gets, un gets underway and the plant is established, what would you like for us to see that is, would be different here? A more positive um, place, like more stewardship, I think. People actually in the places taking care of the things and not just being the, the laborers and the side people that we have been. You have to have faith and you have to believe that there is positive things are coming and that, that's probably the biggest thing is having that that doubt about, you know, that we're being taken again kind of thing, you know. Being taken? Yeah, just taken down the, that path of, you know, while well, we're just using you for, to get to what we need, you know, that that's the way things have been, so. Can I just ask you about um, how climate change has affected this place? What have you noticed? We have seen the seasons change here, like the, the hotter, temperatures we had the heat dome and you know and we have to look at what we can do you know as far as the environment whatever it is like you know even this geothermal like how are we going to affect the environment you know we have to keep that in mind because those are our traditional laws are within that as well that's kind of ironic because it's supposed to be something that helps the climate right yeah. <laughs> so how do you reconcile yeah, those two a, things there's a balance there i think that you, you take what you need and you know you don't do any more than you need to but you keep you keep the environment in the forefront and you know that that keeps us balanced that concern for the environment is something everyone involved in this work seems to share which is why geologist Steve Grasby wants me to see what's next. All right, so oh, there it is, the instruments there. Yeah, I think it's going to be better if we shut down okay. just for... The helicopter brings us to another peak, Mount Cayley. Here, work is underway to test and refine the exploration methods to find out whether there's even more geothermal potential. And these have been sitting here overnight, so... All goes well here, we'll be moving into another spot tomorrow. Scientists from universities across the country are at work. Of these, and they are, as I said, they measure really small voltages in the earth. Even PhD students, part of the future of the geothermal industry. Image and map the um, shallower parts of the, uh, beneath the earth. So Canada may be starting from behind, but the potential is so big it's drawing people from around the world. My name is Fatima Hormozadeh. So I'm uh, working on the geophysical data to uh, image the reservoir, the near surface, shallow parts of the reservoir, and see uh, where uh, the potential uh, hot water might exist. Hormozadeh came to Canada from Iran to study. It's not just a new country for her, but a shift in her outlook. I'd like to um, study geothermal reservoirs um, because of the carbon emission of uh, hydrocarbon resources. So I wanted to um, change the path that I was uh, taking. So um, that's why I uh, came to Canada. <laughs> Actually, in uh, Iran, as you may know, it's uh, rich uh, in hydrocarbon resources and, it's, um, and um, the best universities in Iran focus on uh, studying oil and gas uh, reservoirs and uh, exploitation um, techniques. But uh, I had a goal um, in my life to contribute for uh, clean earth uh, and these things. Um, so I uh, started to looking for uh, opportunities um, abroad to, for my uh, PhD studies. And um, this project was amazing uh, 
and uh, match with my uh, goals, my life goals, yeah. Uh, my name is Mahmoud uh, Muhammad. I'm a doctorate student at Simon Fraser University. Muhammad is originally from Iraq. He too learned all about how to get petroleum out of the ground, but he's broadened his horizons. Uh, for my PhD in Canada, right now I'm focusing more on uh, structural geology mapping. Remember that box of core samples Steve Grasby got so excited about? Muhammad's work is to find evidence of more of that kind of fractured rock to help identify the best place to drill for geothermal. This fracture pattern helps to facilitate the movement of fluids, heats the water in the aquifers below the surface. Those waters will turn to geothermal hot springs. Each set of research adds up to paint a vivid picture of what opportunity lies under this mountain. Steve Grasby and I chat by a small turquoise lake. It's really more of a large pool with melting snow and ice streaming down behind us as we speak. We're surrounded by craggy peaks, but that's not quite what interests Grasby. People aren't used, I think, in Canada to thinking of volcanoes in the country, but we actually have hundreds of volcanoes. Some volcanoes, like the one hidden here, are young, at least in geologic terms. And that means there's a lot of hot magma beneath the surface. In other words, heat to harness for energy, but only if you know where to drill. And what we want to do is to find, is there ways to better target where you would drill another well under the mountain? Drilling here costs a lot of money, so it pays to be exact. To improve their odds of striking the right combination, porous rocks, lots of hot water, Grasby says they have new technology that lets them see the plumbing inside the mountain. And it's hard to know where that is deep in the subsurface, so we're using new tools that can see into the mountain. Um, you can think of it like, a, like taking a CAT scan where you can kind of see, you know, image what's in the subsurface at depth. And, developing a, a three-dimensional image of what's under the volcano. A map, if you will, free for industry to use when it's calculating whether it's worth it to start drilling. Yeah, and that's a big part of it, right, is uh, drilling is expensive. And so the work we're trying to do is to reduce that economic risk of, of drilling geothermal wells. Because if you, you know, if you drill a few kind of wild cat holes and they don't find anything or don't find the right spot, then you quickly run out of money. So uh, our work is trying to develop new tools that just helps reduce that economic risk and you can really focus where you'd put that first well into the right spot. Uh, why is government interested in, in leading the research on this? I think a, a, a big uh, aspect uh, comes from just the whole goal of meeting net zero uh, energy by, by uh, 2050, right? It's a, it's a big task. Uh, right now, about 80% of Canada's energy production is, is hydrocarbons, like oil and gas and coal. It's all part of this, this massive task of, of reaching net zero, and I don't think there's any one way we can do it. So it's going to be a whole spectrum of approaches, and uh, you know, geothermal will be one of those sources, and it's going to be part of, part of this bigger solution. But how big a, a role could geothermal play in getting to net zero? I would like to think a huge role. Uh, one of the, the big parts of it is that it's, it's really reliable, right? So the, you know, we have wind and mills and solar cells that are developed, but they only work when it's windy and sunny. So it, they don't work all the time and they're not a reliable source of power. And to really make that a big contribution, you have to have ways to store energy and which needs batteries and all these other things. But geothermal, it's uh, more akin to 
you know, a, like an operation of a hydro dam or a nuclear plant. It's just highly reliable. The power is always there when you need it. They have reliability factors of like 95% where they're used elsewhere in the world. And um, that's just for electrical production. But if this resource is, is uh, like a small miracle of nature and, and, yeah. and it regenerates, why is Canada so far behind in developing geothermal? You know, it's partly just until you see it, it's hard to believe it, right? So geothermal is used around the world. But I think until we see a first success, it's hard to, you know, to understand it's there. And even just to understand the reliability and how it can be integrated into the bigger energy picture. So we, we need these early wins and this early success, then I think that's going to help it suddenly roll out much more quickly when the people out responsible for planning energy supply can see, okay, this is how it works, right? And they need that comfort level. But sometimes, Steve, in the last few years, you must have just shaken your head when you thought about the fact <laughs> that we were down this path uh, fairways 40 years ago, yeah. and then it stopped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and it kind of stopped abruptly in 1985, but at that time it was a different driver. It was during the energy crisis and, and what, why people were interested in, in it and governments were investing in research was looking for other sources of energy because there was concern over access to um, you know, oil from the Middle East and, and just energy supply in general. So now we have a very different uh, interest rate, right, which is looking for clean energy sources. For me, though, this has been the last few years have been the most exciting because I've never seen so much interest in geothermal in Canada. Um, now we have several projects uh, that are underway that are active, recently drilled wells, um, several different new companies that have formed. Uh, the project at Mount Meager, we have a, a Calgary drilling company, so people with this expertise in drilling that are, you know, for oil and gas, but now they're applying their expertise to drilling geothermal wells. And, you know, I think no one in the world knows how to drill wells better than Canadians, right? It's just an incredible um, expertise that's been drill developed in, in, in the oil industry. And to see that application now to clean energy, it's a really exciting time just to see how much interest and how much activity is, is starting to to come and now I'm just waiting for that first geothermal plant to, <laughs> to make it all a, all reality. But there's another use for knowing this mountain inside and out, tracking the location of natural hazards, hazards that could put a geothermal plant or worse, people and communities at risk. PhD student Mahmoud Mohammed. A great example of those hazards are 2010 landslide in Meagher, one of the largest historical landslides in Canada here. So that's why we try to study those landslides here. At the same time, if we build geothermal infrastructure here, it's really important to monitor because people are investing money in addition to the lives of people. So this becomes really important for the geothermal guys to support natural hazard monitoring. So yes, it helps the geothermal work, but at the same time helps the community as well. It makes me think of something else Chief Dean Nelson told me. Mount Meager is projected to have another huge landslide in the future. Living near enough to worry about that, he wants some certainty that what the researchers and industry know about the risks will be shared with his community. He wants to be prepared. We want certainty on things like if there's any opportunity to have some early warning system or a warning system that lets us know exactly what's happening, then yes. You know, uh, we've had a slide there, a major slide, you know, and we weren't informed, like, on 
living on the bottom of the valley that what exactly was taking place and but to have a system that would tell us you know especially now that meager is it's a volcano that could erupt or you know a slide that could happen at any time is it kind of a condition for you for everything else going forward i would say yes you know that's one of the main ones to have that in place for all the talk about the hazards there's still the reality of climate change and the hazards it invites that's why underneath this leaky old pump the promise of constant dependable renewable and clean energy is gaining attention from scientists and investors alike. And it's there, waiting to be unlocked. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Climate change is already taking a toll on people and communities in Canada. Just ask the people of Lytton, B.C. We're on Main Street right now. And the fire started not far from where we are, um, just a few hundred meters. And right across the street here is our son, Andrew. He lost his home right here. And as you can see, there's nothing there. It was idyllic. Everything we had was what we had worked for. And then it all went up in smoke in an instant. Your life changes like that. My parents lost their house. My aunt lost her house. Two uncles lost their house, all on the reserve. Before the fire in Lytton, I owned a coffee shop and art store. Um, and then we had the fire. Um, I lost my coffee shop, of course. Putting the effort into rebuilding a business, in a way, it's really scary. Um, how much do you want to invest in something when, in the blink of an eye, everything can burn up again? People from the village of Lytton and Lytton First Nation, they suffered those traumatic losses in June of 2021. That's when a wildfire swept through the area during a record-breaking heat wave. Lytton is an extreme example of the cost of climate change to communities. Now, a new report by the Canadian Climate Institute lays out some sobering details about what those costs could look like across the country. Ryan Ness is the director of Adaptation with the Institute. Ryan, hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. When you hear those voices of people from Lytton, what jumps out at you? Sadly, what jumps out at me is that this is a, a story that we're going to hear more and more often across Canada as the impacts of a changing climate accelerate and really take hold. The report says that $25 billion could be the cost of climate change in Canada by 2025. And I'm wondering how that compares to, say, five or even 10 years ago. 
So what our modeling shows that as soon as, as 2025, we will be seeing dramatic effects of the damage caused by climate change on our economy. In that year, in fact, our modeling suggests that over half of the economic growth that we might otherwise expect will be lost. And what's really dramatic is that translates directly into the lives and finances of Canadian households. It'll make life less affordable and negatively affect their bottom lines. Okay. And when you talk about the cost, this $25 billion number, it's not just about the cost of disasters like wildfires or floods? No, these are a combination of those direct damages, the paying for cleaning up and repairing and rebuilding after climate-related disasters like floods and wildfires, but also the costs of disruption to the economy, which are sort of the hidden costs of climate change we don't often see or experience directly. But what happens is that all that money that gets spent on fixing the things that climate change breaks doesn't get used on new things on investing in new businesses, in people having the money to buy new furniture, you know, going out to restaurants, that money is instead used and just keeping people at the place that they already were. How much will Canadians and their households bear of this economic burden that you're forecasting? So our analysis shows that while the news for our GDP, for the size of our economy is bad, the households across the country are the ones who bear even a greater impact because of what it means for their bottom lines. Uh, On one hand, it does mean that they'll be paying more for just the basic necessities, food, insurance, water, electricity, all the things that will become more expensive to deliver when our infrastructure becomes less reliable. But we'll also see the effects on them of a slowing economy. When the economy slows, there are fewer jobs. There is less money, less income to go around. And how does your study say that will affect lower income Canadians? Yeah, that's a a really unfortunate consequence of, of the way that this will play out because the costs of those necessities already represent much larger component of a lower income family's take home and their budget. If the costs of those things go up, it's just naturally going to affect those households more. Now, the report uh, also looks at some interesting implications for different geographic regions of the country. It suggests people in the north and in Alberta will pay a heavy price if this all happens, as you suggest. Why those places? When it comes to the north, much of northern infrastructure, the roads, the water systems, the power systems that northern communities rely on is built on permafrost. And that permafrost is melting and the frozen ground that formerly acted as a solid foundation now effectively turns to mud, meaning that many buildings, many kinds of infrastructure have to kind of be built over again. When it comes to Alberta, we've made the assumption in our modeling that the trends in how weather-related disasters affect Canada and affect different regions are going to continue into the future. So in the recent past, Alberta has borne about 50% of the costs of all weather-related disasters across Canada. That number really surprises me, 50%? It, 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 it is surprising, isn't it? But then when you think about some of the stories that come out of Alberta, I mean, the Fort McMurray wildfire, the 2013 
Calgary floods, even a hailstorm recently that cost over a billion dollars in insured losses. These things are huge multi-billion dollar costs, and they seem to be stacking up in Alberta. Now, this isn't just a study where you lay out all the problems. You also bring in some recommendations for ways it could be dealt with. And one of them is adaptation. You say it's key. What kind of measures should government be investing in? We need all kinds of adaptation measures, proactive steps that we can take to prepare for the changes in the climate that we can anticipate, the extreme heat waves in the summer, the more frequent storms and hurricanes, the coastal flooding and rising sea levels that we can expect. So we need to do things like invest in strengthening our infrastructure to make sure that it can withstand the effects of these new climate conditions. Uh, We also need to invest in making sure that our manufacturing facilities are safe in extreme heat conditions so that the workers can continue to do their work and to produce and drive our economy in a climate that's much less friendly in the future. Well, there, there obviously is, is the case for why governments should be doing this to help protect people. That is a, sort of the moral case for it. But you're also arguing that it makes good economic sense. Yeah, without a doubt, the number one priority of of adaptation is protecting the health and well-being of all people in Canada. But what we show in our modeling is that adaptation is an economic imperative as well. If we don't do it, the costs are going to add up dramatically. But adaptation is a fabulous investment. If we invest now, our assessment suggests that we can save somewhere between 13 and $15 per each dollar invested now over time in terms of the avoided negative impacts to our economy. Now, I'm wondering how important is cutting emissions when it comes to addressing the mounting costs of climate change? We looked at scenarios with and without adaptation, and we looked at scenarios with and without reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions. And we found that each one on its own can cut the costs of economic damages by 50%. But when you put them together, it means that we can avoid 75% of the potential economic impacts of climate change. So really, we need both of those just to control those massive costs to a quarter of what they would otherwise be. Now, the federal government is set to deliver its national strategy for adapting to climate change in the fall. Do you have any sense of whether it's going to go far enough? Certainly the fact that the federal government is leading the development of a national adaptation strategy for the first time in Canada is a big step. It is late. We're 10 years or more behind countries like England and the United Kingdom, but certainly better late than never. What remains to be seen is if it really includes new commitments, new funding, new actions to climate change adaptation that are actually going to be in proportion to the scale of this economic risk and the risk to people that we're showing that we are in for. Ryan Ness, thank you. Thanks a lot, Laura.
We've brought you stories before about how remote indigenous communities are making the transition from diesel power to renewable energy. Today, we're telling you about the Kiashke Zaging Anishinaabek, also known as Gold Bay First Nation. It's among the first indigenous communities to be powered by a solar storage microgrid. Only this story isn't just about clean energy. The community says it's a step towards reconciliation with Ontario Power Generation, or OPG. Wilfred King is the chief of Gold Bay First Nation. The past relationship was acrimonious uh, throughout the years. Um, what uh, OPG at the time, it was HEPCO, um, Hydroelectric Power uh, Corporation of Ontario, built a series of dams on the Nipigon River and flooded Lake Nipigon, rising the water levels. The projects, completed between 1918 and 1950, led to extensive damage. It affected the whole community because we had basically, um, you know, the graveyards were desecrated. Uh, we had graves that were flooded. And that was probably the most uh, serious of, of all the incidents uh, were our graveyards being flooded, um, uh, hay fields being destroyed, houses and docks and uh, structures were falling into Lake Nip again. Um, uh, we once had a beautiful white sand beach in the front of the community that was washed away. In 2014, the power company apologized to the nation, saying its predecessor made a mistake. But here's the thing. Even though Gull Bay bore the brunt of the damage from building the power infrastructure, the First Nation couldn't even connect to the grid. The community was reliant on diesel for decades. Chief King began to look elsewhere for solutions. His goal, to reduce Gull Bay's dependence on fossil fuels. Because diesel is a, is a dirty source of power, we looked at what was around us and we looked at the wind index uh, for the area and the wind wasn't a viable option. And uh, the only thing that was really viable was solar energies. So the company and Chief King came up with a joint solution. They installed a solar microgrid that reduced Gull Bay's diesel consumption by 30%. But Chief King says it's not just about decarbonizing, it's also about addressing past wrongs and giving power back to Indigenous communities. There has to be a direct investment in First Nation communities. I think there has to be that investment from government and also partnership through industry as well. There's 300 communities in across Canada that rely on diesel generation, and diesel is a very dirty source of power, and it, it's just detrimental to the environment. For more on how that's happening in Gull Bay and beyond, I'm joined by Freddie Yupe Campbell. Freddie is a Métis woman and the Global Hub Manager at Indigenous Clean Energy, a Canadian nonprofit. She's also one of the hosts of Decolonizing Power, a podcast about Indigenous energy stories from around the world. Hello. Hello, Laura Marcy. Thank you for having me. Gobe's renewable energy story has been described as a step towards reconciliation. What does it speak to for you? It's a little-known fact that stories like Gull Bay First Nations are quite incredible. Currently, there are thousands of Indigenous-owned and partnered renewable energy projects, and that is no small feat. There has been incredible work done by Indigenous communities to create equity ownership and partnerships, to do them on their terms, and to lead to things like energy sovereignty and greater social impacts for the community. Canadians are, are marking the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What does reconciliation look like when it comes to energy and climate? When it comes to energy and energy projects, historically and still today, 
they have been extremely colonial and haven't considered the indigenous lands, waters, airs that they've been built on. And so I think that in terms of what is next within this clean energy transition, if it is not something that supports free prior and informed consent at the very minimum in Indigenous communities here and across the world, then the project should be a no-go. And there are so many things that we can learn when it comes to sustaining these lands. um, And all of that can be integrated into these clean energy projects. You know, for example, how are we protecting and ensuring that our medicines and our plants um, have the ability to grow and to be harvested every year? How are we looking at traditional migratory patterns of animals? Um, Those are things that definitely aren't, I would say, considered or haven't been considered in the past for these projects, um, but things that now there are really, really good pathways that um, have been built by communities over the past few decades. Does that encompass all of what is meant by decolonizing power or is there more to it? I kind of look at it two ways. Metaphorically, we're talking about power as in power dynamics that are embedded within to our systems within this country and in other countries across the world. When elders, the youth, different races, genders, sexual identities, folks with different abilities or disabilities are all coming together to decide the future of their community and they're being supported within that, I think that is a step to decolonization and a step to having a truly just transition. And then I think the other piece would be the physical kind of power in terms of energy to decide in what ways the communities are being powered. I'm wondering, you you must have uh, heard about in the course of doing your podcast, the kind of impact these successes, these, these renewable energy projects have on the people in these communities. Yeah, the impacts are immense and it's really beautiful. I think Uh, it's been an honor to hear stories from communities across the world who have taken essentially the power into their own hands and come together to build a collective vision uh, for what they see for their energy futures. And that has brought the community together, um, brought a ton of pride and support. It has created jobs and economic opportunities for community members. Uh, It has improved healthcare within communities. It has allowed for social programs to be funded that weren't funded before because a lot of funds that are gained from these projects uh, can go back into the community. And all of these things and more have only been possible because the community was able to come together and create these unique ideas for the projects. I, I want to ask you, earlier in the show, we, we heard we we did a story about uh, geothermal exploration here in BC and about how the Liwat First Nation is involved. I'm wondering what role must Indigenous communities play now in developing new green energy projects on their traditional lands? I definitely think it is solely up to the community uh, for what they envision for their future. And I think that having you know, discussions like these, having education, talking to other communities who have been through similar processes is something that can help kind of pick through the weeds of folks who are trying to take advantage of communities. So it's really important that uh, communities feel equipped and um, together in solidarity for 
how they can really protect um, lands and waters for the future, because I think there will be a lot of things that come up. Um, and it's really important that the proper amount of time is taken to ensure that it is going to be sustainable. And what do you think governments and corporations must do to, to actually decolonize power production in this country? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, all systems within our country were built on a colonial empire. And in order to decolonize, there needs to be a lot of unpacking and unlearning about how those systems can serve more than just one um, or two groups within our society. Uh, you know, discussing how we can create systems that do truly serve the collective. And that's not something that should be decided by a few people. That's something that needs to be decided by the people that the systems are going to impact. That for one, and within companies and corporations, I think there's a huge responsibility to unlearn and ensure that things that they're hoping for when it comes to economic prosperity aren't hurting our planet and our people even more, but giving back um, to folks and trying to create things that are going to brighten our future and, and sustain Mother Earth. Even though you say there's still a lot to be done, it does sound like there's a lot really happening in Indigenous communities right now. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important messages. You know, um, I am a young person and I hear the news and uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom and sometimes it's really difficult to have hope, but the sheer amount of progress and inspiration that is coming from Indigenous-led clean energy projects is so beautiful. Um, and it's been such an honor to be a part of such a amazing community that when it's together, it feels like um, there's no stopping <laughs> in, in what is to come. So if I think, you know, listening to communities stories and seeing how they are creating these incredible pathways um, for their futures is something that I would very much encourage. And that means people should be encouraged to listen to your podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the plug. You're welcome. <laughs> would love that. <laughs> Freddie Upe Campbell, thanks very much for talking with me. Marcy, thank you so much, Laura. And we'll hear more about Indigenous climate action on next week's show, including a look at the Assembly of First Nations' second national climate gathering. And we'll hear from the Director of Environment and Climate Change Canada's new Indigenous Science Division. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, and me. And Molly was actually out at Mount Meager with me. You'll find her article on our website with photos from the mountain. And don't forget to tune in to CBC TV's The National for more of my coverage from Mount Meager. The images are amazing. Special thanks this week to CBC's Shelley Joyce and Alexandra Lepoutre. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.